In the name of the Father and Son, the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. So right now we are in the book of Second Samuel, chapter 20, verse 23. Just before we go on, just to remind you what happened, we remember that David the prophet, he was a king, his own son rebelled against him, tried to cause a rebellion. God strengthened David and helped him to regain his kingdom. We saw last time a lot of the people that made David the king as he was going back to Jerusalem. We also saw that there was another rebellion that took place in Jerusalem because there was a conflict between the people of Judah and the people of Israel and another person came and tried to cause another problem. And then we saw that David the prophet, because this is important, David the prophet, he appointed a new commander for his army. And we saw that his old commander, Joab, killed the new commander. And we saw that the old commander of David, he was able to uh, destroy the person who caused the rebellion. And now we are starting from verse 23 to go on to see what happened. David the prophet had a big challenge. That he has a commander, his name is Joab, he had him all his life, he's actually related to him. Joab was the one who killed Absalom, David's son. Again, it's the commandment of David. Joab is the one who killed the new army leader that David appointed. Joab is somebody who has so much control that David cannot, or too scared of him, not able to fulfill his commandment toward him. If I look at it in verse 23, it says, And Joab was over all the army of Israel, and Benai, the son of Jehudai, was over the Sherathites and the Pelathites. You guys remember I was telling you these two groups of people were mainly the people who are kind of considered to be secret service or those who are kind of working with the, 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 helping the worship and helping those who are fulfilling the rites in the, in the Jewish, uh, in the tabernacle. Here's a problem. David rejected Joab, but Joab by force killed the head of the army. When he's coming back as a victorious leader of the army, David could not tell him, David could not tell him, what have you done? Why did you kill the head of the army that I appointed? Why did you kill Absalom? Why did you all this stuff? David could not speak to him. Why is this important? Because in our life, we all have people in our life that have bad influence on us. And not only this, we are weak in front of them. We cannot tell them no. And those people can cause our spiritual life to go down the drain and could make us disobey the commandments of God and could make us act unjustly with people. And we see this is what's happening with David. He allowed somebody like Joab. Now Joab almost forced himself into being the head of the army. What is he going to do about him? Nothing. Nothing. David does nothing. This guy kills the people against David's command. And he is nothing. Now, here is the rest of the officers. So why is the Bible talking about the officers of David? Now David, back to Jerusalem, they just calmed all the rebels. So he's kind of reminding us of who, is, who are the new leaders. So Adoram was in charge of revenue. Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was a recorder. 
Sheva was the scribe, Zadok and Abithar were the priests, and Era, the Jerite, was the chief minister under David. One of the things that you will notice if you compare this list that we have to the list that we have in 2 Samuel chapter 8, you will find that David's sons are no longer said to be ministers or priests. Earlier in David's life, he put them as ministers, he put them people to actually work with him. But because he did not do a good job guiding them and providing them the spiritual nourishment they need, now his sons died killing each other, partially because of his sin, partially because of their own decisions, partially because of lack of discipleship. And David lost control of having his children being part of serving the Lord. Chapter 21 is quite interesting. Before we go in, it's a little bit, it's an important chapter. It seems like after David reached a point of rest where all the rebels were calmed down, now they started, he started to become lazy. He started to become somebody who was not really yani, seeking God. So God will rise something up to make them repent. Okay, so I just want to show you how some, some of these work out. Now there was a famine in the days of David. Famine, this is not usual. For three years, year after year, and David inquired of the Lord, and the Lord answered, it's because of Saul and his bloodthirsty house, because he killed the Gabonites. We'll stop here just to explain to you what's happening. David the prophet, all of a sudden in the land there was famine. For how many years? Three years. David is facing a problem. For three years, he has not considered asking God until three years. That's already a reflection of weakness, spiritual weakness. Obviously, whenever you have a famine in any land, probably the people who will feel it the least are the king, because he's in power. They're going to feed him well. So by the time he started feeling a need, and by the time he started feeling that he needs God, it took him three years. It shows that this guy is spiritually weak. This is not David who is sensitive to the need of his people, who is a true sh who is a shepherd that God wanted him to be. What's the story of the Gabonites? I'll tell you the story so we can go back to understand. Long time ago, long, long time ago, after Moses, who came after Moses? Joshua. Joshua took the people of Israel from the wilderness to the promised land, okay? When he went to the promised land, God told him, I don't want you to keep any foreigners in this promised land. Cast them out, kill them all. I don't want anybody there. I want this to be holy for my people. For the Gabonites were afraid of the people of God because they saw the power of God. So they wanted to have peace with Israel, but they did not know how to do it. So what they did was they tricked Joshua. They came to him with very little food. They came to him looking really tired. And they told him, we came from a very, very far place. And we want to make peace with you. So we don't, we don't fight. And Joshua made a peace with them and a covenant that he would not fight them or kill them. And they will not fight him and kill them back. Later on, Joshua found out that they were not really, really far. They're actually close. But they tried to look like they traveled a long distance. So they can gain peace with him. What happened was that Saul, when he became a king, 
He did not respect the covenant that Joshua had with the Gabonites. Be careful, this story is not mentioned in the scripture. You can see it from just these two verses. For it looked like that uh, Saul attacked the Gabonites, killed them, and tried to take their land to be his, so he can give it out to his people. An incident that he did, that the scripture didn't even mention in Saul's life. But who did not forget it? God did not forget it. Even the things that we might forget, even the things we might forget, God does not forget. But the question here that's extremely important, why did God wait so long? I mean, Saul died 70 years ago. This is the end of David's life. But God wanted to use this as a way to bring the people back to him, to make them seek him. David has been relaxing a bit in his spiritual life, and he did nothing. Three years of his famine, he does nothing, and God said, okay, I'm gonna make you remember the laws of God, the justice of God. When it says David was seeking God, by the way, it means that David most likely went to the temple. He spoke to a priest. And you guys remember, God used to speak to the priest or the prophet. And also, the priest would wear, uh, would wear his priestly clothes. And he will have two different stones. And some of these stones will light based on the answer that God gives. So, and sometime, God will actually speak out and say, what was the problem? So it's not God spoke to David directly. Most likely, he went to the, the, the tabernacle through a priest or through a prophet, and God spoke to him. So the king called the Gabonites and spoke to them. Now the Gabonites were not of the children of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. They're not Israelites. The children of Israel had sworn protection to them, but Saul had sought to kill them in his zeal for the children of Israel and Judah. Be careful. This is a source of zeal that is not a good zeal. Then he used the zeal to break the covenant that the people of God had with the Gabonites. I'll give you an example. Sometime, for example, you might find a servant who is in charge of some kids doing liturgy. And he wants to teach him how to pray the liturgy. Then you find him do two things that are might be off. One, it's either he yells at them with a loud voice, so he interrupts the liturgy, or he talks to them a lot during the liturgy where he distracts him and distracts people around him. It's a zeal, but done in the wrong way. Saul's zeal, however, had a wrong motive because he really wanted to kill the Gabonites so he can give their lands to people who are who are his family, who are his friends. But this was a problem. Therefore David said to the Gabonites, What shall I do for you? And with what shall I make atonement that you may bless the inheritance of the Lord? Can you imagine God will punish his own people so the children of a foreign land can have their justice? 
David went to the Gabonites and told them, what shall I do? And the Gabonites said to him, well, we have no silver or gold from Saul or from his house, nor shall, we, nor, nor shall you kill any man in Israel for us. So he said, whatever you say, I will do for you. Basically, they told him, look, we do not want silver. We do not want gold. This is how angry they were. They were angry. They, they were. But David did a big mistake. He told them, whatever you say, I will do. You know, this reminds me of the story of Herod in the New Testament. When uh, the, the, the daughter uh, of her death, she, she danced and he told her, whatever you want, I will give you. Sometime you try to solve a problem and, you, and you, for the sake of to please somebody, you might make too much promises. He did not ask God. He did not take his time to think. That's why His Holiness Pope Shunda used to say, the quickest decisions are not always good decisions. The decision that you want to make on the spot, the rush decisions, especially if it's something critical, are usually not good decisions. And as a king, he cannot go back on his promise. So now he told him, whatever he wants, I will do. He's stuck. Then they answered the king, as for the men who consumed us and plotted against us, they shall be destroyed from the remaining in any of the territories of Israel. Let seven of the descendants be delivered to us, and we will hang them before the Lord in Gaba of Saul, whom the Lord chose, and the king said, I will give them. So what they told him, they told him, look, we don't want anything. What we want is seven of the people who are from the family of Saul and who participated in killing our own people. And we want them to kill them. Look, I want to tell you guys, just, uh, just get it off tangent and come back. In the Old Testament, almost all the sins that people commit have very strict punishments. Sometimes stoning, burning people, all that stuff. However, big however, 99.99% of the sins in the Old Testament, there is an atonement for them. You can take a a sheep or a cow and go to the altar and say I have sinned and God will forgive you if you did not have time to get a cow and people are running after you you have two options either to run to a refuge city or turn to the altar and hold on the horn so people do not harm you so there's a lot of ways for your sins to be forgiven and you avoid punishments okay is that clear however one of the few exceptions where you cannot get atonement is when you destroy somebody's life. The Bible insists on life for life. And that's critical because this is what our Lord Jesus Christ did. A life for life. His life for our life. So now, God saw there was no justice. Yes, justice was delayed. But they told him, we want seven of those people who've committed this crime to be killed. But the king spared Methibosheth. You guys all know Methibosheth, the, the, the really beautiful child of Jonathan who was lame, who was paralyzed, who was very faithful to David the king, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, because the Lord's oath that was between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. And by the way, Methibosheth was innocent of their blood. He's a paralyzed child. He did not participate in the war. 
So it was fair for him to be spared from the punishment that's come upon them. So the king took Arumunai and Methibosheth. This is another one, the son of Raspa, uh, the daughter of Ahab, from the from the, uh, whom bore whom she bore to Saul, and the five sons of Michal, the daughter of Saul, whom she brought up for Adrel, the son of Berizel, the Mahulathite. So he took seven of the children who, are, who participated in the slaughter against the Gabonites. And he delivered them into the hands of the Gabonites and they hung them on the hill before the Lord. So they fell all seven together and were put to death in the days of the harvest and the first days in the beginning of the barley harvest. It's almost like they were crucified. They killed them and they hung them. So they almost could have crucified them uh, in, front of, in front of everybody. Let's get the, the Gabonites, they were not bound by the laws of Israel. They are a different country, different nation. They were not bound by the laws of Israel. But even then, the laws of Israel impacted the laws of nations around them. Why am I telling you this? Because a lot of people compare what happens in the, in the, in the, in the cultures of the Near East and they say Israel took, took a lot of things in, from the cultures around them into the scripture. But it actually could be the opposite, where the people around Israel took a lot of their laws into their own scripture and into their own system, into their own law. Now, Raspa, the daughter of Aha, took the sackcloth and, and spread it for herself on the rock from the beginning of the harvest until the late rains poured on them from heaven, and she did not allow the birds of the earth, uh, the birds of the earth, trust on them by day, or nor the beast of the fields by night. Basically, this lady, this lady, she said, "You know what? The bodies are hanging." She started moving any birds or anything that comes across the bodies, even though they were punished, and all of Israel were okay with the punishment because of the famine, because of the justice to be achieved. But this woman, because it's her own children. She stood and she tried to at least honor the body, honor the physical body of, of those people. And David was told what Razba, the daughter of Aha, the concubines of Saul, had done. Then David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan, his son, from the men of Jabesh Gilead, who had stolen them from the streets of Bethshon, where the Philistines had hung them up after the Philistines had struck down Saul in Gabal. Why is this important? I think this is an important imagery because what is this passage is telling us, even though those people were punished in an earthly way for their earthly mistake, still they can be honored and still can have honor in the kingdom of heaven. This is simply an earthly punishment for their own sin. That does not mean they have lost their heavenly reward. And when she honored the body of these people, David himself heard there's a woman standing just protecting the dead bodies. So he himself said, you know what? I have made a mistake. I did not take care 
of the bones of Saul, the bones of Jonathan. I have not respected them. I have not honored them. So he brought up the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan, his son, from there. And they gathered the bones of those who had been hung. They buried the bones of Saul and Jonathan and, thus, and his son in the country of Benjamin and Zala in the tomb of Kish, his father. So they performed all that the kings commanded. And after that, God heeded the prayer of the land. After all the honoring of the bodies and after the justice, God finally heeded to the prayer and heeded to the, heeded to the land and started giving them back their food. Justice is not easy. Justice always is difficult. And in the New Testament, we have gotten so used to the concept of forgiveness and grace and second chances. But God reminds us that the sin is ugly and has its own consequences. And it has its own retribution. And in order for us to walk with God, I have to be serious with myself. And I tell you a story and then we go back. One time somebody asked his Holiness Pope Shun, I told him, sometimes I break my fast on Wednesday because I forget. You know what was Pope Shun's response? He told him, well, when you remember, fast the rest of Wednesday, and Thursday. So next week, you're not going to forget. Sometime I have to push myself. Another person, uh, was written by Abu Yusuf Asad, who came to the priest and told him, I'm struggling with the sin of pornography. But the priest told him, anytime you fill in temptation, take all the money in your wallet and donate it to the poor. In the old days, they did not have credit cards. So this guy said, when I fell into temptation the first time, I was struggling. Should I do this? Should I not do this? And he obeyed his father of confession. He took all the money he had and gave it to the poor. And he actually, God made him read a verse in Luke when it says, by your taking care of the poor, you become pure. So he gave, he gave this money to the poor. And then from that moment on, continued to live a life of purity. Yes, forgiveness is easy because of the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. But if I take everything for granted, if I take everything for granted, I will not be able to enjoy the grace that comes with it. That's why the scripture says the kingdom of heaven suffers violence. And we must take it by force. I have to force myself. When we hear about the stories of wars and fightings and all these things, sometimes God wants to remind us of what it costs to live a life of, uh, of purity and life of justice that he paid for us. Now this whole situation with the Gabonites are over. Now David has an enemy that's always there, the Philistines. So David is back to fighting the Philistines. Let's see what happened, because this is a beautiful passage. It has a lot of beautiful meaning. When the Philistines were at war again, again with Israel, 
David and his servants with him went down and fought the Philistines, and David grew faint. David is now probably 70 years old, old man. But when there is a war with the Philistines, what does David do? He goes and fight. Why? Because his biggest sin he committed with Bathsheba when he did not go to war. He learned, if I give my body rest, if I let the desires to come to me, I will fall. I will fight even if I'm 70 years old. Now he learned his lesson. That's why one of the saints said, do not let yourself put your guard down even for an hour. And sometimes you come back after from a long, long working day, and then you eat a lot, pinch eat, and then you just sit, sit down and be like, I just want to relax. And the devil's like, hmm, it's a good time. He overate. His then he can bring you all the temptations of the world that he wants to bring you. But David learned his lesson. Learned his lesson. Uh, and David, by the way, even though David was very beloved by God because of the constant war that he had and all the blood in his hands, God would not allow him to build the temple. God told him, there's too much blood in your hands. Even though he's fighting the enemies of God, but also David fought a lot of battles that he was not supposed to get into. So David grew faint. Then Ashbai Benob, who was one of the sons of the giants, the way of whose bronze spear was 300 shekels, who was bearing a new sword, thought he could kill David. But Abishai, the son of Zariah, came to his aid and struck the Philistines and killed him. Then the men of David swore to him, saying, You shall go out no more with us to battle, lest you quench the Lamb of Israel. Just a beautiful kid of thought I want to leave you with, but I will go back to what we're doing. There was a family in Palestine, in Palestine, and this family, it seems like all what they brought were giants. David fought their older brother, Goliath. You guys remember when David fought Goliath? How many stones he had with him? He had five. Why did he have five? Because Goliath had four other brothers. We're going to see the four right now. So when he actually took the stones to go beat Goliath, he was not worried that he will miss. He was ready to fight all five. He was ready to fight all five. Now, this is another giant who came to fight him. And this giant is coming to fight him with a sword. No longer in the old days. Remember, when David fought Goliath, he fought him from far. As you grew old with God, with a lot of experience with God, God might allow the devil to come and fight you harder, like Saint Anthony. And now the devil is approaching him with a sword. When he fought Goliath, it was mainly about fear. Can you as a child overcome your fear? Now he's fighting somebody who's so close to him with a sword who could kill him. 
But who saved him? The people around him. When David was young, nobody liked him. If you meant to remember when he went to fight Goliath, even his own family, his own brothers did not even like him. Now, David, as he got older, now he has a spiritual friendship. A spiritual spouse, spiritual husband, a spiritual children. And they were able to help him at a time when he fainted. At a time when he was almost certainly going to die. And that's the extreme importance of my friends that I keep with me for the rest of my life. They could be the difference between life and death. You know, like this is what God said. He says, I put in front of you life and death. Choose life that you may live. This is what's happening with David. Now it happened afterwards. There was again a battle with the Philistines at Gob. Then Sebeshai and the Hushathai killed Sapha, who was one of the sons of the giant. This is a war that David did not fight himself. His own army fought. Again, there was a war at Goba with the Philistines, where Elihan, the son of Jarah Uragim, and the, the Bethlehemite, killed the brother of Goliath the Gittite, the shaft of whose spear was like the waver's beam. They're all family of joints. Yet again, there was a war at Goth, where there was a man of great stature who had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, 24 in number. And he also was born to the giants. So when he, def when, he de when he defiled Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shema, David's brother killed him. These four, the four brothers of the giant, were born to the giant in Gath and fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. What's happening here? Even though David did not participate in all the wars, the scripture attributed the victory to him. He defeated giants. The first one was Goliath, which was his fear. As a young child, he met a humongous guy, and he wants to fight him. And a lot of our decision in life are impacted by fear. I was kid, uh, listening to a famous clinical psychiat psychiat psychologist and he said, the worst thing you can do in life is to do nothing. Because life will continue to move on even if you do nothing. And the devil wants us to be paralyzed. For David was able to defeat his fear. The second giant, he defeated him because his friend was alert. Some sins we're expecting and we're used to all the time. But some sins come to us suddenly. And they attack us without us being aware. And that's why the presence of our friends with us and our father of confession is extremely important because they can help us to understand the, the wars of the devil that we're not aware of.
that we're not aware of. You know, I'll tell you guys something. Many people come and talk to me in my office and say, Abuna, you make a lot of announcements about people must confess regularly. And they tell me, there's nothing for me to confess about. I'm a good person. And the first thing I tell them, this is already a problem because the devil have convinced you of a wrong idea that you need to reveal. Because you might be a good person, but what you don't understand, without the spiritual guidance you get, your life and the growth in your spiritual life will be very slow. It's almost like you're reinventing the wheel of, of a spiritual life. So when you have somebody around you who's alert, can help you when you make a rush decision or when you're not paying attention. Sometimes, for example, people might get into toxic relationships. And when they are in a relationship that is toxic, they cannot get out of it or addiction. And quite often they need somebody around them who's alert to help them to come out. This is what Abishai did to save the giant, to save David from the giant. Obviously, the enemies that David's army kept defeating on a daily basis, the, these are representing the hidden, the, the typical temptations that come to us. The bad thoughts and the gluttony and the judging and, and they come daily. It's a business, everyday business. And he started to learn to defeat them. The giant who came to him with six fingers and six feet, this represents somebody who packed the sin or presented the sin in a different way. They presented the sin in a different way. And the ability for somebody who has a strong discipleship to be able to say no. I'll tell you a, a, a small story. And then the next chapter actually is one of Wonder, uh, wonderful chapter because it, it's a praise of David. But before we go and tell you something small, I remember Keda during my 40, day, 40 days as a, uh, as a priest in the monastery, we had a brother who was taking care of the priests and the priest's house. And this brother, he had like a phone, but this phone would only allow him to speak to people within the monastery to take care of the services that the priest needed. But he spent time with us and, 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 you know, like, as we talk and whatever it is, somehow it came about that, you know, we should get you a phone, you know, a real phone. Why do you have this phone? So, you know, we had somebody coming from America who got him a nice iPhone and, 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 and he was, you know, really happy with it and all this stuff and life moved on. A week before we left, he said, I want to have a meeting with you. So we had a meeting with him, it was me and a couple of other priests who serve in America, but in the 40 days. He says, look, I spoke with my father of confession. And all the things that you have given me, it would only hurt my spiritual life. I can no longer keep it. It's a phone. And he got it from priests. He said, it will hurt my spiritual life. At that day he stood give us the phones back, give us other gifts that we give him, all of it back.
And not only this, we were looking to buy a luggage, because we're running short on luggages. He says, look, here are the two luggages that I came with the monastery. I no longer need them. I'm not going to leave. And he left the two luggages with us. After we left, he was ordained a monk. The true discipleship would help us to know the sins when they come in a different way. And by the way, this is what's happening in our world. The Bible says there's nothing new under earth. The lust of the eye, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. Nothing new. Nothing new. All what's new is it's presented in a different way. Now it's on Instagram, on social media, on Snapchat, on TikTok, on, 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 on people being obsessed with buying brand names, on people being obsessed with trying to control their per people's perception, all this stuff. That's all what's happening. That's all what's in the world. Nothing new. For David, by the end of his life, he was able to defeat a lot of giants. I'll tell you guys something, I cannot help to say this. I was thinking about this today. David have written many beautiful psalms, and chapter 21 is a beautiful psalm. 22. I could not help to think, what if, what if David never committed adultery? And what if David never arranged for Uriah to be killed? How many more psalms he would have written? How many prophecies would he have seen? How much glory he had been in if he would have not fill one day, one moment, came to him and costed him many years of suffering within his own house. Do not underestimate the sin. Yes, God did not leave him, and God guided him, but it was not without a cost. It was not without what a cost. Chapter 22 is a beautiful chapter. David is singing at the end of his life, talking about the work of God in his life. Such a beautiful chapter, and it will take us some time to go through. But today I want to give you the breakdown of the chapter, so as we go through it, we know it. So if you have your notes, I would recommend taking this down. By the way, chapter 22 is extremely similar to Psalm 18. It's very, very comparable, and, and, and they're very comparable in the same words and the same, the same, the same uh, things. The Psalm, Psalm 18, it says, I will love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. This is Psalm 18, same thing that David will start saying. So in this chapter, from verse 2 to verse 4, David is proclaiming. He's telling them, let me tell you about my life. And then verse 5 to 7 is a summary of what God has done for him. From verse 8 to 31 is a flashback, kind of detailing what the things that happened in his life. From verse 32 to 46, he does some reporting of the hands of God in his life. Verses 47 to 50 is a vow to God. And verse 51 is praise to God. So it's a beautiful psalm that teaches us how to reflect on our life with God. A lot of times when, you, when people are near their death or getting older, 
you see kind of extreme kinds. Some people cannot stop talking about themselves. And some people cannot stop talking about God. Sometimes I sit with people, why was when I was younger, we went here, we came here, why know this person? I was the first to enter, I was the second. All these stories. And some, they can only talk about what God has done in their life. This is what David is doing. Chapter 22. Then David spoke to the Lord, speaking to God, the words of the song on the day when the Lord has delivered him from the hands of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. The end of his life, he defeated the giants. He defeated, God saved him from Saul. So he's looking at his life and sees, wow, lots of victory. And I am sinful. And I worked with the enemies of God, the Palestinians. And I committed adultery. And I planned to kill somebody. And I did not raise my children well. And I was lazy. And I was this. And I, and I lied. And I caused the, the city of priests to be destroyed. I committed all these sins. But God still delivered me and brought me to this day. Sounds familiar? Sounds like all our life. And he says, the Lord is my rock my fortress and my deliverer. Always in the, in the Old Testament, the word rock is usually on a high place and you put somebody on it to protect them. And the word rock here, usually for Israel, when you say the Lord is my rock, he put me on a high place, it means he put me in the presence of God. The temple was on a high place People used to worship in high places. Usually in the high places you see the presence of God. Everything almost seems like a under you. Under you. That's why in Psalm 31 it says, Bow down your ear to me. Deliver me speedily. Be my rock of refuge. A fortress of defense to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress. Therefore, for your name's sake, lead me and guide me. Imagine kida when imagine kida like if you uh, if you ever if you ever been if you ever swim in a in a beach with a lot of waves like we used to have this in Alexandria for example, and then somebody's drowning, what do they usually do? People will go kida try to save them and then put them on a, a small rock kida. Usually there's some rocks, so they can be saved. This is exactly what God does. He takes us and elevates us so everything under us seems so small. The world is a sea. The Bible always talks about the sea of the world. And now David becomes a rock that are protected. And God for us becomes our rock from all the thoughts that occupy us. And if you think about the thoughts that goes through our mind, how much people are obsessed with money and success and who I'm going to get married and and the people that are giving me a hard time, and the tribulation, all this stuff. God says, look, all this headache, I'm going to raise you and set you on a rock. Above the world. People will be thinking of all these worldly things, but you are going to enjoy the kingdom of heaven. You are going to enjoy the kingdom of heaven. And he says, says that God is my fortress, Fortress means somebody who I take is a stronghold that protects me. 
And if you guys remember in 2 Samuel 5, 7, it says, Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is the city of David. He took the city that God provided him to be a fortress place, a place to meet God. And for us, especially the children of God, our heart, our own bedroom, our spiritual retreats could be a fortress where all the thoughts of the enemy can be taken out so I could spend time with God and can be protected. Next week, we'll continue from verse 3, and glory be to God forever and ever. Amen.